0: This afternoon, then we'll return to the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness. And we'll follow this afternoon a very classic sequence taught by Buddha Gosa. And we say Buddha Gosa, again, it's not here's one towering peak within the Theravada tradition who had this extraordinary display of ingenuity and brilliance, but rather a fantastic chronicler and synthesizer of practices that have been going on for centuries before him. So that's how he's really, in a way, a magnificent librarian. But it's better than that because he had this tremendously synthetic mind that could bring things together in a very, how do you say, exactly that, systematized way. So in any case, he's drawing on centuries of experience from the Theravada tradition in which the sequence, as you probably recall, starts from oneself. And then we go where it's easiest. Now, in traditional cultures, they might find it very, very easy to feel loving-kindness from themselves without having all the hang-ups that are, are associated with modernity. But be that as it may, a good one goes out, directs the attention to someone for whom one finds it very easy to feel this kind of warmth, the affection, the, the caring, the loving-kindness. And then going a little bit further out to a loved, a, lo- a loved one, but maybe not quite so close, and then you can imagine the rest. Just goes out and out until, of course, the ideal is that it extends equally in all directions without barriers, and hence the term immeasurable, because there's nothing to block it. Right? Now, as we arouse loving-kindness for ourselves and others, it's very important to embrace both aspects of loving-kindness, and that is not to kind of just look right over, as if it's insignificant, uh, the hedonic well-being. And so if you know people, they could be personal personal acquaintances or friends of yours or of course when you extend loving kindness out further obviously there are many many places in the world we don't have to look very far where there are really material needs that are not being met and it's not just material needs are people who are lonely that's not a material need they would like companionship and so forth and that's that's a me- kind of a, that is a hedonic sense of well-being but certainly not insignificant and so as we Arouse this wish, this aspiration of loving kindness for others. It very much embraces their own desires for hedonic well-being. It's always important to recognize we're not trying to superimpose our own trip, our own desires on other people. You should want this. You should want this. I want you to want that. It has none of that flavor. So when it's the hedonic, uh, then really kind of getting in the flow of where their own desires are, assuming, of course, that they're not unwholesome. That's the exception. Throw that out. And so there's the hedonic, and then, of course, on that basis, on that basis, that the hedonic needs have, are being fulfilled. So important. On that basis, then we get to the meaning of life, and that is a pursuit of genuine happiness. So, in terms of the actual arousal, someone had mentioned earlier something I think a lot of us can resonate with, or very easily so resonate with, experience, know what, know what this person is talking about. Um, I won't, no need to mention, mention name, because it, uh, but it's. it's doesn't matter. And that is when venturing into this practice, feeling at the beginning it's more just cognitive, feeling there's not much juice, there's not much real movement of the heart. And so how does that gradually arise? I mean, that is very, very common for almost everybody who does this practice. At first, it's a bit thin. But how does it go deeper? And there we can go back to, once again, the classic teachings, the classical teachings. And that is what is the immediate catalyst that gives rise to, like a, like a match gives rise to a flame, what is the catalyst for the emergence of this aspiration? Bear in mind, it's not just a feeling or an emotion, it is an aspiration. Uh, and what is the catalyst for it? And it's seeing the lovableness in another person, another sentient being, it doesn't have to be a human being. But the lovableness is that as one attends to that to individuals, whether visually or it could be over the telephone or, of course, it could be mentally, as we do here in the meditative practice, but as we attend closely to them. And bear in mind that one word, attend, is the common ground between shamatha and the four measurables. If you recall, very rather important, attend means to look after, to watch over, to care for, to tend to. Attend means tend to. And so as we tend to, as we look after others, then as we do so, as we attend closely and also see that kind of that common ground between ourselves and others, can we see in them something that is truly worthy of love? So it's a very important distinction. We're not looking for attractiveness here. Then all the loving kindness would only go for the young and the handsome and the beautiful, you know, not old people like me. And so you know, include the old people, <laughs> you know. And so it's not looking at appearances. It's not just looking at appearances. Kids are the cutest, Right. It's not just looking at, at appearances, but attending deeper and seeing something, seeing there, the subject gazing back who is truly worthy of love. So, a place to start, for example, is if you look in the mirror. You know, And as you look in the mirror, you look into the reflection and the eyes, the reflection of the eyes looking back. Do you see somebody you like or would you say, I don't want to live near you? You know, What's the feeling as you just gaze at your own reflection? And the idea here is not how handsome I am or how beautiful I am or how young-looking I am and so forth and so on. Of course, if we're right back to appearances. That's just attachment or aversion, how old and wrinkly and ugly I look, um, but rather seeing through. So I think you get the message there. It's looking, it's looking with a heart. It's looking with a heart rather than looking with the eyes of attachment or aversion. So there's one point. Second point before we just jump in. point's immensely, immensely profound, And if it's true, it changes everything. And that is, it becomes quite obvious, especially the longer we live, that no matter how virtuous one's life may be, how altruistic and benevolent and meaningful one's motivations may be, pure motivation and so forth, that doesn't mean, you know, the more devoted you are to a spiritual path and really cultivating these inner qualities, that doesn't mean your life's going to be easy. That doesn't mean you won't get sick that doesn't mean you'll be invulnerable to accident. That doesn't mean that people won't sue you or, or, or lie to you, exploit you, and so forth. It doesn't mean you'll be invulnerable to natural calamities. In other words, leading a life of virtue doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a lot more pleasant on the hedonic level. And we know there are so many examples of that, I don't think I need to give one. And so, in the midst of that, though, and so, if that's if that's the case, as we simply develop loving kindness for ourselves and others, and we're attending to others and wishing, "May you find the hedonic well-being you seek," and then they don't. You know, but I, w- I was praying, I was offering these thoughts of loving kindness. You know, it's an uncaring world. There are two very different kind of systems going on here, and that is, in terms of hedonic well-being, there just doesn't seem to be any direct correlation between you know the, the, the degree of virtue you follow and how much hedonic pleasure you have, and should, just in terms of sheer pleasurable things happening to you. Some, but not that much, and sometimes severe departure. As we know, many of the greatest beings of the world have been assassinated, martyred, and so forth. And so there's that, and we're all familiar with that. But then the deep point, and this is one that one could simply accept as a religious belief, and, and that, that would be fine, But then it's kind of like, I have the answer and I don't need to think anymore. Religious belief often works that way. But taking it not as a religious belief, but more as an empirical question. It seems on the one hand that the world is rather, if we anthropomorphize the world, it seems that the world is rather indifferent to our hopes and fears. You know? Do do things really turn out well? Just the world, not other people. Some people care, some people don't. But just the way things turn out, the economy, the environment, and so forth and so on. It doesn't seem like the world is designed to make us happy. Put it that way. Right? Hedonically happy. But here is a hypothesis. and And it's a gradient. And that is that the more our whole priorities, our aspirations, our time, our energy, our passion... Is oriented to, directed to, the cultivation of genuine happiness. That the world rises up to meet us. That it's not indifferent. It's not unrelated. It's not just a, a little tiny subjective attitude here that we're tossing tossing into a great mindless machine, of the universe. And this is apart from theistic uh, uh, traditions like Christianity, for example. Christianity. Then the belief is there's a benevolent God who's looking after, his followers. And there's, there's a divine plan. A sp- and it works out very well for the Christians and not so well for everybody else, You know, at least according to many Christians. There's a big debate going on in America right now. There's one evangelical Christian who has the audacity, and very popular, and he had the audacity to suggest that possibly not everyone, that everyone who's not a Christian isn't going to hell. He is actually challenging that. And it created a lot of anger among a lot of evangelical Christians he said, if you take that away of us, then how do we get more converts? Basically, we have to tell people, if you don't convert, then you're going to hell. And you're taking that, that card out of our deck. This is really awful. So there's quite a hot debate going on in America right now between this renegade evangelist that says that, that um, Mahatma Gandhi didn't go to hell. And he said that. And it's creating quite a backlash. So there's one, one worldview. And some people find that appealing. Um, I don't need to comment further. And then there's a materialistic one, and that is just the world is, is mindless. So it's beyond indifferent, it's simply mindless. And then here's a Buddhist worldview that in fact is not just uniquely Buddhist, but it crops up in multiple traditions, and sometimes in a theistic mode, sometimes in a polytheistic mode, and so forth. And that is, it's in the very nature of reality itself that it rises up to meet us insofar as we are aligning ourselves with the pursuit of genuine happiness. And why? It's not just some mystical mumbo-jumbo, because the pursuit of, of genuine happiness is rooted in reality, very deeply. It's rooted in Buddha nature, and it doesn't get much more real than that. And so this comes up explicitly in Buddhism. And some quite extraordinary claims are made. I remember uh, my first teacher from whom I really, you know, he just drenched me in Dharma, Geshinga on Dhaige, in Dharmazala, India. I think it was he who said that if you're a very sincere practitioner and you're utterly devoting yourself to authentic practice and you're living in a cave and you're just devoting yourself to practice all the time and you have no food, he said food will roll uphill to your cave. <laughs> <laughs> Defy the laws of gravity, you know? <laughs> and I'll just give one example of that. Not quite, you know, miraculous. Food's rolling uphill. But it may as well have been. I knew a fellow... A tel- uh, um, I think I'll, I'll leave him anonymous, but he's an old friend of mine, very good man. But he was, at one point in his life, a long time ago, he was a heroin junkie. And and classic hippie, but kind of really the doped-out, zoned-out addict, hi- hippie. And with something like, a well, a very modest amount of money in his pocket, then he hitchhiked from Europe, overland, of course, uh, to India, and then roamed around India, getting high and grooving on the Indian vibes and all of that. And then somehow his meanderings led him to meet some lamas and he made his way to Dharamzala. And then he started studying Dharma and he started cleaning cleaning up his act, cleaning up his act. He's living there for months now. And he came over with something like $15. But he he settled in Dharamzala after just roving around like really a bum, like a hippie bum, heroin addict. He came to Dharamsala and then he settled in there and he started studying Dharma very seriously, studying Tibetan language, became fluent and he eventually married in Dharamsala and he had a couple of kids in Dharamsala. He's doing this on $15 a day. No, $15, period. Not bad. Right? Now, before he married, and he, he continued living there for years, but when we were both then up in the mountains meditating, and, and he wasn't married yet, but his, his wife was also very, is very devoted to Dharma, but uh, everybody knew he had almost nothing and yet he was never skinny. And so I was living up in a little, uh, another little cabin up in the mountains and he was over yonder and when, on one occasion I had a bit of extra food, a bit of extra food. And so I went over to him, to his place and said, hey, buddy, uh, I called him by name, no, buddy is not his name, but I said, I, I've got some extra food, could you use some food? And he said, no, I've got more than I can eat. And that, is really stretching $15 a long, long way. And so the thing was, people knew. People knew that here's a man, very simple, that is just simply devoting himself to Dharma, but he never missed a meal. And for all the years, I, you know, all the years that I was in India and so forth, never missed a meal, never missed a meal. And so that really seems to be quite a universal truth, that even your, your hedonic needs are met if you devote yourself to dharma. And then on top of that, of course, then in order to flourish in terms of genuine happiness, then you need more than just food and shelter and, and, um, and clothing. Then we have these these old adages coming out of the Hindu tradition. When the, when the disciple is ready, the guru appears. That's been around for th- hundreds of years, if not a couple of thousand. And that's not talking about the food the guru is going give to you, give you lunch. The guru is going to help you in your pursuit of genuine happiness, of real sukha. And so it's suggesting also that when you're really ripe, then reality rises up to meet you. Meeting your needs, not necessarily all your desires, hedonically, and meeting your needs spiritually so you can really flourish. So if that's true, and I must say, I won't elaborate now in my own life, but I have been testing that hypothesis for about 40 years by now. And just time and time and time again to explain things or try to explain away events that have taken place in my life, and saying, what a coincidence. Wow, that was a coincidence. That was a coincidence. That was a coincidence. After a while, it just sounds stupid that coincidences don't line up like that one after another, after another, after another. After a while, are you, are you stupid or what? Don't you get it? Reality's rising up to meet you. You're devoting yourself to Dharma, and reality, and Dharma, by the way, means reality. Um, reality's rising up to meet you, so you can rise up to meet it, and you're dancing in a very meaningful dance on a path to enlightenment. So, is that true or not? But if it's true, and of course you can imagine my conviction, but it's not based on some religious belief. It's not just based on stories of the past or aphorisms that food will roll uphill. It's based on watching for 40 years my own and other people's lives and saying, there's too much here to be coincidence. But if that's the case, if it really is true, that it's insofar, that is, we don't have to be absolute millarepas. For this to start, you know, it's a gradient. But the more we move along that gradient towards really aligning our own aspirations with reality and the pursuit of genuine happiness, the cultivation of virtue, the pursuit of insight, all three profoundly entangled with each other, it really does appear that reality is sympathetic to us. There's blessing. And if, you, if you're a theist, you may say, Thank you, God. Thank you, God. You know? And if you're not a theist, you say, This is how it works. This is reality. This is just what happens. There it is. But if this is the case, and again, I'm not offering this as a religious belief, let alone a doctrine, let alone the absurd notion of you, sh- you have to believe, that just makes no sense to me whatsoever, it does change everything. It really changes our view of the nature of reality we're experiencing around us and how we participate, what our role is in that. Rather than the the... the the worldview that I've been exposed to for all of my scientific training from childhood on is that life, the emergence of life out of inorganic molecules was just an accident. Nobody quite knows how it happens. And then out of organic molecules and cells then emerged consciousness. That was just an accident. Nobody knows how that happens. And then people aspire, you know, have spiritual aspirations. That's just because how we evolved as animals and evolutionary psychologists are trying to figure out this must have been adaptive in certain ways. Because if you really you, know, you really start being spiritual... I saw this just recently. If you're really compassionate, if you're a man and really compassionate, more women will want to mate with you. That's a hypothesis I saw. You know, they want to mate with you. And then you get a pass on your sperm and you, you know, your, your big genetic success. I mean, they'll, you know, they'll stretch for anything to try to show us how meaningless our lives are. That it all boils down to just genes or molecules, the selfish gene and all that rubbish. And so that's one hypothesis. It starts out sterile and it ends sterile. There's nothing beyond it. Your life started out meaningless. It ends meaningless. Try to imagine you have some meaning in between, but don't try too hard because it's futile. And then it's over. So there's one model. That's a working hypothesis. And here's another model. That the more we orient our, our aspirations, our conduct towards the pursuit of genuine happiness, we're doing something profoundly realistic, and reality rises up to meet us. So this is a splendid hypothesis. And then see. Then you can check it to see whether a lot of really meaningful, really cool coincidences start, start happening to you. Okay? But let's return to loving kindness. Let's we'll start for our, with ourselves and then extend out like a very benevolent ripple ripple effect out into the world. As your first act of loving kindness in this session, settle your body in its natural state at ease, still, and vigilant. Release all control over your respiration. Let it flow effortlessly. for a little while set your mind at ease in stillness and clarity as you calm the mind with mindfulness of breathing just for a short time we attend to the breath, we attend to the world of actuality. What is going on right now that is actual. But if we stay there alone, it implies we have no imagination. We're not encompassing the whole of reality. Because reality is also comprised of the realm of possibility. So move into that realm now, using the power of your own imagination. And envision your own flourishing. Envision what would make you truly happy. Provide you with the fulfillment that is your heart's desire. Imagine the possibility that this vision has its roots in the very depth of your own awareness, the greatest depths of rikpa itself, pristine awareness, that this is indeed an expression of your heart's desire, stemming way beyond the psyche, beyond the substrate, to the deepest ground of your being. If you can embrace this working hypothesis of this primordially pure dimension of your own, wo- uh, your own awareness, your own being, symbolically visualize this Buddha nature, this primordial consciousness as a radiant orb of light at your heart, utterly pure of the nature of bliss, of the nature of loving kindness. incandescent star of light. With each outbreath, arouse the yearning. Express it as you will. But possibly, may I simply be well and happy in the deepest sense of the term. That all my hedonic needs are met. and that I may realize my deepest vision, my highest vision of genuine happiness. With each outbreath, imagine from this inexhaustible source of light at your heart, rays of radiant white light emerging out in all directions. With each out filling your body, saturating your mind. Breathing life into your vision. letting your imagination play with each out-breath. Imagine here and now realizing your own vision. Imagine experiencing such well-being. Imagine your whole being filled with this light. Indivisible from this light. And now invite into the space of your mind direct your attention to someone who is very dear to you. The very sight of this person may fill you with a sense of gladness, of warmth and affection. Insofar as you are aware of this person's desires and aspirations, bring them to mind. Both in terms of hedonic well-being as well as genuine happiness. each outbreath arouse the yearning, the yearning of loving kindness. May you find the happiness you seek and cultivate its causes. May you be truly well and happy. With each outbreath, breathe out this light from your heart, as if your heart were a lighthouse emitting a great field of light, a beam of light, embracing, suffusing this person each out breath breath by breath imagine this person realizing here and now the well-being that is their heart's desire Let the appearance of this person fade back into the space of the mind. And now direct your attention to another loved one. It could be a friend, a relative, a parent or a child. And practice in the same way. now let your attention rove. You may attend to others whom you know quite well, but generally don't think so much about bringing the realization that everyone you attend to is equally worthy of finding genuine happiness. Some have greater virtue, some have less. Each one has this depth of purity. Each one is worthy to discover that purity and tap into the source of genuine happiness. release all appearances and objects of the mind and all aspirations and let your awareness descend to its own place simply knowing itself I see there are no written questions today. I didn't go to the bulletin board, so there may be some lingering there. I'll get to them on Monday. I thought I'd make a few more comments relevant to the meditation we just practiced. If we bring our Western categories, Eurocentric categories, to Buddhism, Buddhism is a big misfit because it doesn't conform very neatly to the Western Eurocentric or Judeo-Christian or Abrahamic concept of religion. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all religions; they're 100% religions, and Buddhism is not quite. It has religious aspects to it, and what happens sometimes there's something of a movement of, of secular Buddhism, and to my mind, I part of it, may, part of me just wants to start laughing because it's coming from people coming from a Eurocentric perspective projecting the, the Western stereotypes of, uh, of religion onto Buddhism, and then saying, we have to secularize Buddhism, and so let's see if we can... Actually, what they're really trying to do is pull out their own projections that they superimposed on Buddhism in the first place. Because Buddhism doesn't fit that category very easily, nor is it simply, simply a science, nor is it simply a philosophy, nor does it easily fit into the category of atheism or non-theism, non-theism, theism, polytheism, It doesn't fit into those very neatly either. It didn't grow out of the Mediterranean basin, so there's no real reason why it should fit into the categories that were, how do you say, grew up out of that particular Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman matrix of civilizations. Where this is pertinent to the practice here and the broader context of meaning is very commonly, from a theistic perspective... Meaning is out there. God is out there, an ultimate reality, and God created the universe. We had no role in it. We just came in on the last day. This is God's creation, and there's meaning in the universe because God put it there. And so when a tsunami strikes and tens of thousands of people perish, the devout theist, I'll just keep it broad theism, will feel this is, they call it, an act of God. This is an act of God. It wasn't human mischief. It was an earthquake. And it created some and it killed thousands of people. And as an act of God, why would a benevolent God do that? And then the phrase that comes out is, mysterious are the ways of the Lord. But there must be some meaning. There must be some meaning to it. And it's out there. But we human beings with our very limited intelligence and so forth, we can't quite see it. But it must be there because God created the universe and he created it in a meaningful fashion and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and droughts and famines and so forth. They're all acts of God and there must be some meaning there someplace. So that's one orientation towards meaning is that it's out there and we have to peel back the layers of our own delusion to try to see what's really going on and know that we'll probably really won't ever really see it until after we're dead. And then you can't tell the people still alive. That's a bit unfortunate. So there's one orientation to meaning, that it's absolutely objective. And then if we look into the other major option in modernity, coming exactly out of the same matrix, out of the the European basin, or the Mediterranean basin, Eurocentric cultures, and that's materialism. And there, it's just the universe objectively is flat out meaningless. It just has natural laws of physics, chemistry, biology. It has genetic mutations, adaptations to changing environments. But there's no teleology. There's no any movement towards something meaningful. It's just, here's a new environment. Do you survive or do you perish? Do you pass on your genes or not? And that's it. And we just grew grew out of inorganic matter, organic matter, and then we just go right back to it. And so objectively speaking, there is no meaning whatsoever. And the only two big options for the universe is it's going to keep on expanding, get colder and colder and colder until everything dies and it remains dead forever. That's one option not very meaningful to my mind, or at some point, somehow there's enough dark matter in the universe that that expansion, which is occurring right now, will stop. It'll be the big turning point of the universe. And the universe will start to withdraw into a, what's called a big crunch. And then it will go into a singularity, in which case all life perishes, of course, long before that happens. It's going to get so hot that you know no embodied creature could, could bear it. And so it's either just goes out and out into a big whimper, or it dissolves into the big crunch. But either way, there's no meaning in it at all. It's just happening. And so from this perspective, this materialistic perspective, any meaning you feel there is in life is something you create, and it's your own subjective creation. And if it's meaningful to you, well, then that's good. If it's collecting marbles, collecting stamps, building hospitals, having a whole bunch of kids, whatever it is, if you feel it's meaningful, then go for it. Just don't go illegal because we'll punish you. But besides that, so meaning is entirely your own subjective thing. And it's every person for himself. It's extreme meaning meaning relativism. And it goes hand in hand with moral relativism. Because there's really nothing moral about the universe. It's, it's morally absolutely neutral. And so therefore any morality is just basically that's also your choice. It's, it's a moral relativism. So where does Buddhism come into this? It's neither one nor the other is there meaning in life it's a very it's a very big term in buddhism that life become meaningful do you do you but it's not something you simply discover nor is it something you simply fabricate but it comes out of this dance out of this entanglement this engagement with subject and object the two together coming out of that engagement emerges meaning and it's not just simply subjective it's not arbitrary nor is it simply something you discover as inherently existent, already out there, it is emerging like the rest of reality in codependent origination, arising, arising, arising. So in the Buddhist pursuit of meaning, and it is a very central topic, as His Holiness Dalai Lama has often said, the very meaning of life is the pursuit of happiness. Quite of a joyful concept, really. But of course he doesn't mean, he couldn't possibly mean, that the meaning of life is a pursuit of hedonic pleasure, more fame, more money, more sensual. He knows that. It has to be, of course, genuine happiness, that that's the meaning of life. But then how do you find it? What's the strategy? What's the, what's the method? And the method is primarily to overcome delusion and to know reality as it is. And so the pursuit of knowing reality as it is becomes essentially meaningful because it is that which leads to genuine happiness. Misery comes out of ignorance and delusion Therefore, genuine happiness is going to come out of insight and understanding. So now these two are utterly paired, utterly mingled. The pursuit of genuine happiness and the pursuit of truth. So the pursuit of truth, if it's truly in the spirit of Buddhism, it never strays far. It never strays far. It's always going to keep in touch with the pursuit of genuine happiness. So the notion of spending days, months, years, or decades in the pursuit of something merely out of sheer curiosity that doesn't connect at all with the pursuit of genuine happiness, it never caught on in Tibet or in in, Indian Buddha, in Buddhist India or anywhere else. They were all... If you look at the structure of knowledge in the great Nalanda tradition, the cent- there was something called the adhyatma, adhyatma vidya, the inner knowledge. It was the core, the center of the whole education system. It's the nature of the mind. The nature of the mind and the source of well-being, that was the central topic for the whole education. And out of that would come four other, within the panchavidya, the five fields of knowledge, out of that would come, as it were, like spokes of a wheel, knowledge of healing, medicine and healing, knowledge of logic, clear thinking, knowledge of creativity, of technology, of creation, and then knowledge of sound, sound itself. But all of this is flowing into the center. All of these, and then there are more derivative ones of astronomy and so forth, poetry, literature, and so forth, but all of these were designed to flow into the center, and then the, f- the center turns out like a fountain, like the f- a fountain we're seeing over there at the sports sports facility. Then the fountain from the center flows out and enriches all the others. So the knowledge of healing is coming right out of the inner knowledge. Knowledge of creativity is largely it's spiritual. It's tankas, it's statues, it's stupas, and so forth and so on. It's mostly religious, you know. And that goes likewise for the logic. The logic is designed to understand the nature of the mind. And so that's all entangled. And even the the science of sound, which is language and other things. And so the pursuit of meaning and the the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of genuine happiness completely coupled in classic Buddhist cultures in multiple places. But India especially, that was the mother. And then one can say, is that all there is to it? And then we see something very odd that's not there in in modern science. And I have a lot of admiration for so much of science. But this, the next point, is missing. And that it is the thesis, a remarkable thesis, that there are facets of reality that you will not know experientially. You will not know them experientially. You'll not gain direct insight into them unless you're leading a virtuous life, unless you're leading an ethical way of life. Because if you're not leading an ethical and virtuous way of life, your way of life is out of accord with reality Therefore, you will not realize the reality that is out of accord with the the, the way of life that you're leading. So you have to overcome craving, hostility, self-centeredness, and so forth to realize a reality that is incompatible with that, like Buddha nature, like emptiness, and so forth. And so now it becomes three things utterly entangled. The pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of genuine happiness, and the pursuit of the cultivation of virtue. And the three are all really of a piece, really of a piece. So it's not uniquely Buddhist, but it is essentially Buddhist. We find it in other contemplative traditions as well. But that, in short, would be the meaning of life, the integrated cultivation of genuine happiness, of insight in the nature of reality and virtue, and all three mutually interdependent. So when we wish for loving kindness for ourselves, that might be something to keep in touch with as we yearn for the well-being of others as well, that there really is, and I'm going to say something I virtually never say, but I heard since I was a kid, there is no other way. (laughs) There is only one way. Hallelujah. (laughs) Praise the Dharma. There's only one way to find genuine happiness, and that is to seek its source to know reality it is and live in accordance with that reality, and that's the only way. And if you're a Christian, if you're following that and you're a Christian, hallelujah, praise the Lord. If you're a Jew, if you're a humanist, you're a Taoist, Hindu-Buddhist, that's fine. But that's the only way. And that one, I say, I think is a really strong statement and, oddly enough, utterly non-sectarian. Utterly non-sectarian. Oh, Lasso, any comments or questions from your side? Yes, okay, we're going to start with Ileana. Rogers had his hand up many times. I won't ignore you, but we'll play the field here. Thank uh, Thank you, Lizzie. Two questions. Um, while I'm doing awareness of awareness, mm-hmm. I don't see the difference between the mind and awareness. The mind and awareness, okay? So, what's the difference between them? And is awareness a property of the mind? Mm, interesting. Very interesting. Good. I'm glad you only ask one question at a time. Because whenever people ask two, I always forget the first one by the time I go to the second one. Because I kind of go into question samadhi. Um, the relationship between awareness and mind. Well, for starters, we human beings are the ones who define our terms, whether it's in Spanish, in English, Bulgarian, or what it, what it may be. But we have defined the terms. So we're not discovering the definitions. We're creating the definitions. And if they're really useful, then they help to illuminate the nature of reality. Let's draw a contrast. We have the practice that you're very familiar with now, settling the mind in its natural state. Now, that's also called, it's called by various names, but one of them is Semla Mi Peshine in Tibetan. Shamata, focused on the mind. Okay? Now you know, But now when I'm saying these words, you know exactly what I'm referring to. And that is when we say you're focusing on the mind, what are you focusing on? Well, I think you could, you could tell me right now, you're focusing on that, that domain of mental experience, the space of the mind, and whatever distinctively mental events arise within it, which means you're not attending to any of the five physical senses, but you are attending to the other domain, It is purely mental. And we will say that that domain, that domain itself, the space of the mind and all the events that arise in it, and that's emotions, dreams, thoughts, memories, fantasies, the whole array of mental phenomena that arise, we will call that the mind. The mind, right? And so let's hold on to that. That is one meaningful term, and it doesn't sound weird in English, hopefully in Spanish. Also, it doesn't sound strange. And now what happens as we do that we have the mind settling in its natural state. And the word settle literally means to descend, to fall. So this structured mind. So when thoughts arise, as a native Spanish speaker, if if thoughts arise, they're probably frequently Spanish, sometimes English, maybe you have other languages you know as well. But the images that arise will also be familiar to you. They're drawing from your past, your your visual past, auditory, and so forth. So you're going to be seeing images, mental events, and so forth that are very much of your mind, you know, with your personal history, your ethnic background, and so forth. And as the mind descends into or settles in its natural state, that configured mind that's so strongly conditioned by your personal history, your language, and, and biology, for that matter, that's melting. It's dissolving. And it's dissolving into what is called semgi, semgi wo, the essential nature of the mind, the essential nature of the mind. Now when we when we peel back the various configurations of your particular mind, now what's essential there? When we get down to, to more of its, its core, and that's the substrate consciousness that is simply luminous and knowing the very nature of consciousness, the very nature of consciousness. So it was your mind with all these mental events and the space of the mind and all of that. But in the course of settling the mind, then those events gradually subside, they dissolve, they dissolve, and all you're left with objectively, in terms of what is appearing to you, is a space of the mind. And all that's arising subjectively is just a flow of consciousness, the substrate consciousness, which is luminous and cognizant. Right? So that's what you're left with at the end of the journey, the Shamata trek. you know When you arrive at your destination, your mind has dissolved into an underlying and more essential and less configured consciousness now of course when you come out of samadhi when you come out of if you've achieved samadhi and you come out you'll still speak spanish you'll still have your memories and so out of that essence will blossom once again your mind but now it's a mind you can actually use as you wish rather than it using and misusing you right so there's mind and then there's awareness now if we relate this to the other practice that we just finished doing a couple of days ago, and that is awareness of awareness, shamatha without a sign or without an object, then at that point, we're not even interested in the mind. We've already stopped in this progression. Let's let's do the whole progression. Mindfulness of breathing, we're not interested in anything outside of the body. At all. And we're interested in the mind only insofar as we want it to shut up. And just be non-conceptual. Let me do, what I, let me do my job. I want to focus on the sensations of the breath. So, but this means we're, we're kind of like ignoring most of reality, the whole world around us, for a little while. And we're focusing there, let's say, at the apertures of the nostrils. Then we take a step further in settling the mind. Now we're not even interested in our own bodies, let alone the, you know, all of the five sense fields. Now we've withdrawn entirely into just the mind and its contents. And so now it's much more, in a way, narrow focus. At the same time, how big is your mind? And then you see it's narrow, but it's not narrow at all. It's vast. It's simply not attending to the sensory. Then we go to awareness of awareness, and now we're not even interested in the mind. We, you know, long, long ago, in a way, left our interest in all of the sensory fields. Then we lost our interest in the images, thoughts, and so forth cropping up from our own background. We lose an interest even in the space of the mind. We withdraw from all of that, from all of that. And let the awareness just come to rest in its own nature, at which point we're not even interested in the mind and we're interested only in what is the raw, unelaborated experience of being aware. And so Tsongkhva says it as concisely as anybody can, I think. You're resting then in the sheer luminosity and the sheer cognizance of awareness. And he says, Tsam, Sel Rik Tsam, Sel Rik sheer luminosity, or just luminosity, just cognizance. By, by what, and what he's saying there is don't elaborate. Nothing more. Just that. And that's awareness. Those are the salient characteristics, the defining characteristics of consciousness. Is that clear? Okay, good. I have another question. Oh yes, you had two. Very exactly good. <laughs> no. Um. Without the cultivation of the four immeasurables... With the... The cultivation... The cultivation, yes. Of yes. the four immeasurables... Right. Is it possible to achieve Chamatha? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. In, in any of the four, actually. Uh, and I li- I'm, I'm very happy with the question. Uh, but the answer is unequivocally yes. It's, it's taught quite explicitly, especially in the Theravada tradition, but not only. For example, Tsongkhapa, who is, you know... A, classic Tibetan Buddhist, one of the greatest scholar contemplatives of the whole history of Tibet, he commented, before he goes into the main body of his teaching on shamatha, uh, he says there are different shamatha methods, and it's a very interesting personality typology that he enters into that's rooted in classic texts a good thousand years earlier than him. So he's drawing on some pretty ancient wisdom as he's writing there in the early 15th or late 14th century. But he looks at different personality typologies, and he comments, for example, and I think it's something five or six or so. And one of them is, this will be very familiar, he said, and, and he's going, this is going right back to the teachings of the Buddha, let alone later commentarial literature. And he's saying there's, there's a personality type or a psychophysiological constitution because the body-mind, again, is so intertwined where there's some people who just have, conceptually, their minds are chatterboxes. You know, just a lot of, it's called in Tibetan, nando or vikalpa, just a lot of obsessive-compulsive thinking coming up. Okay, that's a personality type, right? And he said, for those people, mindfulness of breathing. <coughs> there isn't Songkaba saying this, right? Classic Tibetan Buddhist. But then he goes on to say, there are some people as a personality type who have a very strong disposition for, for hatred or anger. especially hatred. Yeah, real ill will, you know, or anger. And he said, for such people, the meditative cultivation of loving kindness, may be the fastest track to achieving shamatha. Right? So he says it explicitly, but if you go back to the earlier literature in the Theravada tradition, you can achieve shamatha. You can achieve the first jhana in any of the four, all four. But then one might wonder, if you think, what is the very nature of shamatha? The word shamatha, the Sanskrit term means tranquility, serenity, quiescence. That's just what it means. And then the Tibetan goes into shi-ne. She means tranquility calm, serenity. And ne means abiding. And hence we have this t- translation from the Tibetan as calm abiding or peaceful abiding. In other words, person doesn't make any difference, but calm abiding. It goes back to Jeffrey Hopkins because he was one of our first really solid, very highly competent translators. Uh, his knowledge is quite extraordinary. And so he translated this literally syllable by syllable from the, t- from the Tibetan as calm abiding. The Sanskrit just says tranquility or I translate it as quiescence. But, you know, these are just sm- small variations. But what's the spirit of it? When we speak of this is stillness. The The calmness is a stillness. A real stillness. And bear in mind, when you achieve shamatha by any means, you dissolve into the non-conceptuality of your substrate consciousness, or the subtle continuum mental consciousness, or the bhavanga, call it what you will. So one might wonder then, you now you're pretty familiar with the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness, that it's active you're using imagination you attend to yourself to other people this person you look to the left the right up and down and so forth and you're using imagination and you're arousing thoughts and so it sounds much more like a movie you know something really dynamic and changing and changing and you're never staying in one place very long and so one can say this is analytical this is discursive meditation and it's better better translation discursive meditation than analytical meditation because frankly the cultivation of loving kindness is not analytical that's a literal translation, but it's not always a very good translation. But discursive meditation. Is the cultivation of loving kindness, is it a discursive meditation, or is it just a placement meditation? Or just a, it's jokom in Tibetan, just placing your attention and stabilizing it. Well, as we've learned it here, and I'm teaching classic methods, uh, it's a discursive meditation. You can say, well, One can say, wait, wait but that, that's not shamatha then. Vipassana is a discursive meditation in the sense that it has some mode of inquiry. It may be very elaborate conceptually, it may not be, but Vipassana classically defined always entails some degree of inquiry and not just placement. So bear attention by itself is not Vipassana because that's common to shamatha So you can't say something that's common to Shamatha and Vipassana is Vipassana. That would mean Shamatha is Vipassana. Well, it's not. Right? So how do we overcome this apparent dilemma? In a very beautiful way. And that is, bear in mind, as an analogy in the mindfulness of breathing, we start with something that will never get you to shamatha. And that is, you'll never get to shamatha, you'll never realize shamatha, if you're still focusing on the sensations of the breath. Because you're locked there in the the desire realm, in tactile sensations, and to achieve shamatha, you must disengage from all of the five physical senses and go completely mental. But it's very, very useful to get started. And until that acquired sign arises, this is the ticket. This is the way to get to the acquired sign. You can't skip it. You can't say, never mind preliminary, just give me the acquired sign. You can wait a long time. That's not going to happen because it comes out of the refinement of attention that takes place through mindfulness of breathing, focusing on the sensations. Now, similarly, somewhat similarly, as we're meditatively cultivating loving kindness, we start, this was classic. This was a classic Theravada approach. Tomorrow, we'll go to a classic approach tracing right back to the teachings of the Buddha. It doesn't get much more classic than that. And so what are we doing? We're engaging in discursive meditation. We're bringing to mind one person after another. We're doing visualizations. Uh, we may, if we wish, bring forth this kind of this imagery of light and so forth, arousing motivation, imagining this, imagining that. All of this is discursive. If you continue doing that all the way through, you'll never achieve shamatha. If you just keep keep it going, keep it going, Right? But now, what's all the point of this? This also came up earlier. Does loving kindness really come out of, does loving kindness emerge from those images, those aspirations that you deliberately generate from those thoughts, those memories, and so forth? Is that where it's coming? Is it coming from that level? Does loving kindness emerge from thoughts and images and so forth? Does it emerge from, you know, light coming from your heart? Clearly not. Clearly not. Loving kindness is a quality of your Buddha nature. It's not something emerging out of thoughts. So the whole point of of arousing this type of thought, imagery, arousing aspirations of this sort, is that these thoughts, images, and so forth are in alignment with, are in tune with, are resonant with aspirations that are utterly intuitive, preconceptual, coming from a much deeper place, rikma, pristine awareness. It's aligning there. So you're doing something way up in the surface of your mind. That like The image I like most is a Polaroid lens. And you know, you know like on a camera, you, you can turn it and you turn it and everything turns black. And then you turn it and then the light gets through. Like that, right? With two Polaroid lenses. And so what we're doing is insofar as I let my mind, for example, my mind, insofar as my mind is caught up in my attachments and my aversions and I want this and I don't want that and look out, I, I wanted that, you don't get that. As long as I'm just caught up in aversion and self-centered desires and so forth, this is like a Polaroid, Polaroid lens masking, obscuring, blocking what could naturally arise from my pristine awareness. But it blocks it because the thoughts, attitudes, the attention and all of that are completely incompatible with that which is coming from a deeper place. And then through training, through familiarization, through exercising, through cultivating these types of thoughts, images, and so forth, then we shift that, we turn the lens, such that loving-kindness can start flowing through from a deeper source. So the all of these conceptual practices, the discursive meditation, with the visualization, memory, and all of that, and the arousing of desires, and reciting a mental liturgy. May you be well and happy. There are different liturgies, different phrases that are used. And whatever works, then follow that. But by doing all of this, we know the practice is working principally when you see a genuine aspiration coming. And and not just a thin cognitive aspiration, but one that is warm, one that is caring. It has a quality of affection to it, right? For some, it may be more imbued with with more emotion, somewhat a little bit with less emotion. That's a given back to temperament. It's really temperament. So people who are very, very emotional are not necessarily more loving. They just have more emotion. So when they experience loving kindness, there'll be a lot more emotion attached to it. They'll probably be much more effusive in its expression. But another person with a different temperament may experience very deep loving kindness, but by temperament, not so effusively emotional about it. But that's the person who is willing to, you know, make major sacrifices, devote him or herself to really helping others find their happiness. And so where it really matters, loving kindness is there. Sometimes there's a lot of emotion, not a whole lot of loving kindness. All the words sound like a lot of loving kindness, but it's mostly just a whole bunch of emotion. And over here, there's loving kindness. So through these practices, I'm maybe I think I'm going on too long. I'm going to wrap it up. Through these practices, it opens up a genuine aspiration. And where it starts is where it should. And that is really arousing, allowing to flou- to flower an aspiration for your own happiness because it's so easy, especially in our modern attitude of just so putting ourselves down that we lower our expectations. We learn how. Through high school, through young, ad- uh, young, young adulthood and so forth, we learn you're being too, ad- uh, you're too idealistic. Or the old cynical man look, t- turning to youngers. oh, you'll learn. As you get older, you'll learn to, you know, those idealist aspirations are not realistic, but you'll learn. You'll learn. You'll be grumpy and cynical like me. Just wait. You know? And so all they do is lower their expectations. You're just an animal after all. What do you expect? You're just genetically driven. It's just your libido. It's just your death wish. It's just, You're just neurotic. What do you expect? You're just a human being. Lower, 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 lower. Until I'm reading all the time in the, in the media now that the brain is doing everything. I was just reading about a very renowned neuroscientist. And how they described him was he's really showing how the brain thinks about the mind. I thought, Wow. That's interesting. You're now saying, you know, the nature of human nature. And the brain's thinking. The mind's not thinking anymore. The mind is fluff. And the brain's doing all the work. And therefore, you are a brain. And if you're a brain, you know, how high should your expectations be? Really, it's complex, yeah, but it's just an organ, really. doesn't have a Buddha nature. brain doesn't have a Buddha nature. Does loving kindness emerge from a brain? Has anybody ever seen loving kindness emerge from a brain? Does one brain really look at another brain and say, I love you, especially your neocortex? Really turns me on. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. So it's really a dehumanization. I don't think it's actually a a joking matter that they've displaced human beings as agents. And it's in the common, this was in the New York Times. No, the Time magazine. It's, It's commonplace now. It's all over the media. That human beings are no longer agents. It's the brain doing everything. And we're along for the ride. The brain, how the brain thinks about the mind. right? So there we are. So that's how to lower expectations. Just down to the animal level. Down to the robotic level. And so this can really be a severe impairment to imagination. Loving kindness is restoring our humanity. It's human beings who think. We think with our minds. And the brain is involved. And those are all three, three, three true statements. And then envisioning from this deeper place. Envisioning our own flourishing. And so, arousing an aspiration for it. Letting your dreams come up, you know. And not getting rid of them as you outgrow childhood or adolescence. So it's a dream of Buddhahood. It's a dream of awakening, a dream of liberation. You know, and allowing that to arise for yourself. And as that arise genuinely, and this is loving kindness for yourself, then extending it out to others. That each one may have all of the hedonic needs fulfilled, so important. And then may you look beyond that and realize your full potential as a human being, as a sentient being. So, now I will wrap up. You know, I'm, I'm never good at short. But we use the discursive meditation until that aspiration arises. A very loving, and affectionate, warm aspiration like a mother gazing on her child and not having to think about it. But the mother may be watching her child play with other children and just gazing, gazing, watching the child play. And without having to think anything, just attending with just an ongoing flow of loving kindness a wish, and doesn't have to be articulated anymore. The mother doesn't think, may you be well and happy, may you be, it's already there, right? And so when that flow of affectionate, caring, concern, aspiration, wish, desire, that doesn't need to be put into words anymore, when that arises, then you develop stability and vividness in that subjective aspiration. And that's how you achieve shamatha. And at that point when that flows, that flows, then you release the conceptualization, the imagery and all of that. And you continue attending maybe to all sentient beings, maybe to whoever it may be, but you sustain it and the stability there is non conceptual. It's simply sustaining that flow of loving kindness with clarity, stability and relaxation, right? And then, just like following the breath, if it sometimes it gets kind of vague and just kind of like, what? What? Then you can bring in the discursive meditation again and again attend to some person, some community of people or other sentient beings. Arouse it so it flows again. So it's like an artesian well that sometimes a little mud kind of clogs it and then you clear away the mud and it flows and flows until you achieve shamatha non-conceptually where you're simply dwelling in loving kindness. Your mind is a mind of loving kindness and it's stable, it's luminous, it's blissful and you bring loving kindness right down to the substrate consciousness. That's how you do that, right? Now, of course, the other methods are so helpful for stabilizing and bringing clarity to the attention, so that when you come to your loving kindness, it works all the better. But the loving kindness, in turn, does a big favor of shamatha, of making the, the heart soft, and it does tend to overcome a lot of mental afflictions or at least subdue them, because the loving kindness can't coexist in the same moment with hostility and self-centered attachments. Okay, it's a very rich question. That's why I said a long answer. Thank you. Anything else coming up? Yes. Sandra. Speak, <coughs> excuse me. Speaking of other yes. ways to achieve shamana, Ducham Lingpa writes in the Vajra Essence about a practice of creating a bindu at the heart. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little about that? Yeah. Handle with care <laughs> the bindu at the heart. Sure, this is a classic practice. Uh, it's, it is indeed, you're exactly right. It's taught in the Vajra Essence by Jujo And I've seen it in many other texts as well. Uh, sometimes focusing on a, like a blue orb, uh, like a, an indigo uh, orb of light. And it can be quite a small bindu or orb of light right in the center of the chest. Focusing it single-pointedly. Some, some will make it a white orb. It's usually red or white, one of those two. And right in the center of the heart chakra. And that becomes the single-pointed focus. And it really is a point. And in fact... In the classic teachings, the smaller you can make that orb, the more powerful the samadhi. So if you make if you make like a tennis ball, kind of clunky, golf ball less clunky, bring it down to a marble, bring it down to a BB. You know, and the smaller the better, and you single pointedly focus on it. Right, very powerful. Handle with care. If one has a very balanced mind with maybe a lot of background in, in cultivation, loving kindness, very pure mind, very gentle mind, very gentle mind. And you do that practice. Well, you might recall, I think from just yesterday, I commented, and I'm quite sure, because the question was over here, maybe Rhonda perhaps, about the energy, oh no, maybe it was Suzanne. Remember, but the, the question was, when you're directing upwards, is there a sense of energy? Wasn't it you, Suzanne? No, it was Rhonda. The one, I just know the space. Um, but Rhonda, we were talking about the energy coming up, that wherever awareness goes, there your prana goes. So whether it's up in the space, whether it's to your fingertip, or right in the center of your heart. And now you're talking about a small orb of light, which means you're talking about real high-density, really high-density awareness. Because now you're withdrawing your awareness from everything else, from the rest of the mind, from sensory, everything. And everything is going literally into a single point. Let's say a blue orb of incandescent radiant light at your heart. Well, this means you are just... Collapsing the prana in your body right into the heart chakra. Okay, now that can be a really good thing. Number one, as I mentioned, I think also yesterday, or maybe it was just a personal a personal meeting. When we're in the active waking state, the pranas associated with consciousness tend to be gathered in the head. This chakra right here, between the just just between the eyebrows, and then it's actually inside. So, in other words, the cortex. So waking state, energies associated with mind tend to congeal or converge in the brain. Dreaming, dreaming, those energies descend from the brain down to the throat chakra. Deep sleep, they descend down to the heart chakra. Now, what, what happens to your consciousness when you go into deep sleep? Your mind dissolves into substrate consciousness. So when you're in substrate consciousness, the energies converge at the heart. Well, what's another way to get to the substrate consciousness? Lucidly. So with this powerful technique, really high, high technology technique, you're focusing your attention on this blue, which is the color associated with rikpa and with deep consciousness, deep indigo blue. So you're getting the color... It's color-coded and it's right there in the heart chakra. You're drawing all the energy into the heart chakra. So physiologically, in terms of first-person subtle physiology, you're getting a big boost by all the energies being drawn right to where they would be going if you are going to be slipping into the substrate consciousness. So it's a very powerful method, very powerful. But now let's imagine the mind you bring to it is caught up with a lot of obsessive compulsive ideation, of rumination, craving here, hostility there, resentment here, hope and fear there. And you bring a pretty grungy, dysfunctional mind with associated prana, because they are coupled, they're paired, so dysfunctional mind means dysfunctional prana and vice versa on that level. And now you're going to compact some really dysfunctional prana really intensely right into your heart chakra. And you're going to compact your mind full of anger and aggression and excitation and laxity and you're going to compact it all like, like, like a garbage compactor and try to compact that all right into your heart. What do you think that would turn out like? Uh, possibly heart attack, arrhythmia, Deep depression, going comatose. Did I say arrhythmia already? Um, major problems, major problems. So that's why it, it's a very powerful method. It's an utterly authentic method. It's taught repeatedly in different traditions. There's nothing sectarian about it. It's taught in Tibetan Buddhism, so, but I've never, and I'm not seeing it anywhere else. It's very powerful, but it is for those who can approach this with extreme gentleness, softness, lightness, because as you do this, you're very, the very locus of your awareness, that is, where are you are looking at? Are you up in your head looking down at this little blue BB in your heart? Not when you get into it. Your very awareness descends. This is, this is exactly what you're supposed to do. The locus of your awareness, where you feel you're viewing from, descends from where it probably was, and that is up in the head, descends right down to the center and into that blue orb of your light so you're imagining the blue orb of light with yourself being that blue orb of light. It's a non-duality. You're visualizing yourself now as a tiny blue orb of light. So everything is collapsed. Instead of into a black hole, into a little tiny blue orb. Everything collapses into that. It's really intense. Right? So I was doing a similar visualization in my first Shama retreat 30 years ago. Um... 30 years, it's April. Yep, I was in retreat 30 years ago to this, right this day. And I was given a visualization practice and this first one I ever did. And the visualization was not at the heart. It was down, down on the, the navel chakra, down below the belly button, four, four finger weights below. And it was also quite small. And I thought I, w- and you know the story, I was going in gung-ho with a lot of, a lot of effort and striving and I will conquer this and I'm going to be really good at it. Went in with sheer muscle power Relaxation was a wimps. I knew that. That's for softies. But I was a tough young guy. and I don't need relaxation. I'm just going to muscle my way through. And so I was getting up there where I could focus for half an hour or so, as I mentioned, I think, yesterday, and ha- felt I'm, not, I'm, I'm never leaving. I'm just, I'm locked in. I got a lock. Like I'm a, you know, like a fighter, fighter jet pilot. I've got a lock on a helicopter. I'm going to blow the smithereens out of it. I got a lock on you, you little sucker. You know, you're not getting away. And I went to his, his holiness was guiding me in this retreat. And I told him, I, I, I feel like I, I've got a lock on the, met, on the object for about half an hour or so without break. And he said, oh, good. In that case, um, then now just dissolve your own awareness into that visualization. So don't look at it from up, down, you know. Hello down there. No, just drop. Like, get, let your awareness get into an elevator and just drop right down. And he said, view that visualization non-dually. Be that visualization down there in your lower chakra in the, in the, in the navel chakra. Okay, boss. And I hike back up to my cabin up in the mountains, way up above Dharamsana. And man, I have never been through the ringer like I was, trying to follow those instructions. I would try to get down there and it was like, how do I get down? It's way down there. And I'm kind of tall, so it's harder for tall people. If you're short and stumpy, that would be really much easier. But I've got, I'm have got i tall, and I was skinny too, so it was kind of a slender shaft to get down there. And so there I was, really, I mean, I adore his holiness, and I had, such, had, had and have such reverence for him. I really wanted to do what he told me to do. And I wanted to come back and said, I did it. And he would say, good, good. So I wanted approval. So there I was, going, <laughs> trying to squeeze myself down, pulling... Pulling myself down into the throat at least. And, I, uh, uh, and sheer effort just wasn't doing it. It was like it had filled with a thousand helium balloons, and I just couldn't get that awareness to come down. I thought, How do you do this? And then I had another bright idea. Imagine you've got an enormous gargantuan belly. You know, and then just imagine you're inside this great big belly and I'm looking at my head way up there about a kilometer above my head, succeeded. And that was just weird. That wasn't it. And I spoke with, I think it was Genjamawandu, Chamawandu. He was the one that lived on these meditation pills. And I said, how do you do that? And he kind of looked at me cheerfully and said, oh, you just relax. And that was just like, I don't know, eat yellow. I, I, don't, know, I don't know what you're talking about. you know. <laughs> and so it would just burn me out. I, just, I could not do it to get my awareness down there to be viewing this visualization from its own perspective. I just couldn't do it. And I tried and I tried and only failed. And so I went two or three weeks later for my next meeting with His Holiness. And I said, I tried. I really, really tried. And I just couldn't do it. And he said, well, that's okay, then don't do it. <laughs> and that was the first wake-up call to me, you know. The guru is to guide you in your meditation, but he's not... Don't just take everything literally as the absolute final say. The guru is there to guide you in the meditation and to help you cultivate your own wisdom and not just be obedient. It does not, not saying now be disobedient. It's just saying there's a heck of a lot more to, to practice than just being obedient to the Guru. That the Guru's task is to help us cultivate our own wisdom. And that's what he did. So my reverence for him now is much more than it was then. But I recognize that was a, a lesson for me to learn. Learn it. But you also have to be cultivating your own wisdom here and not just being a really good student and obedient. So, come back there. If you want to go back there, come very gently. And if you're here, let me know about it. Because then I know that one person is carrying nitroglycerin around with them. (laughs) And I don't want you to blow up on my watch. (laughs) Hola, so which brings us exactly to 6 o'clock. So enjoy your delicious dinner. And I'll see you. Ah, yeah. So tomorrow, um, let's simply continue practicing. Then you have a wide-open day to just have nothing other than Dharma. Uh, And so enjoy it. And I'll see you around and then we'll gather again on Monday morning.